Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. I'm your co-host today, Brendan Connolly, a first-year medical student at Loyola Stritch School of Medicine. And I'm another co-host, Emily Hagan, also a first-year medical student at Loyola. And finally, I'm your third co-host, Raj, also a first-year medical student at Stritch. We are starting a new mini-series within the Medicus podcast focused on the theme of medical myths. These episodes explore misinformation and common misunderstandings in the healthcare world with the goal of helping to dispel common myths and to promote education and awareness. Today's episode focuses on medical school admissions. So who better to have than a dean of admissions? Our guest is Daryl Neighbors, who's the dean of admissions here at Loyola's School of Medicine. Dean Neighbors, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brendan, Raj, Emily. Good to see you all. <laughs> it's nice to see you on the other side of this process. Right, right. Where we're... This is like the most relaxed I've seen you in many, many weeks. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. So wanted to start off, we have a lot of things to cover because, as you know, better than anyone, there's a lot of myths and uh, tall tales within the world of admissions. And uh, I wanted to start off by telling a story from my interview day, um, which was more than a year ago now. And you may not remember, but you led it. And uh, you started off by having us do an icebreaker where we go around the table, say where we're from, who we are, and also a fun fact. And I went last because I was on one end of the table, got to me, and I said something silly about winning a lip sync contest and uh, being paid money for that. So I consider myself a professional <laughs> lip syncer. And so we were about to move on. And then you said, hey, wait a second. You also played college basketball. What are, you, know, what are you doing? You got to talk, talk about that. You know, I felt like I got to sneak in a second fun fact and was feeling pretty good about that. And uh, I also just took that as a good sign that, you know, there's some personality in this process, that it's actually a personal process. Um, it's not as cold and unfeeling as it might seem when you're first submitting your AMCAS application. And I was wondering if you could start by speaking to that, that admissions is not just an algorithm, that it's actually people behind it and, and emotions and uh, a lot of thought that goes into the process. Well, I, uh, I, appreciate, I appreciate that, Brendan. Um, I do rem- remember your interview day. I, I remember often the idea that, um, you know, you try to introduce these candidates to the opportunity to open themselves up and to feel more comfortable and, and to really embrace their uniqueness. So I think that's one of the things that we try to do in that orientation. It's pretty unique. It's certainly not novel. I mean, I, I remember that kind of being the way we started things out at, uh, at Pritzker. Um, but I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you just want students to recognize that, you know, they're there for a reason and they've, they've been pretty much hand selected to be in that interview day. Um, and obviously we know that students are nervous when they, when they do, um, make it to the interview day. So, but certainly, yeah, I think personalized attention to details within the application has become a very big part of our process. When I started here in 2015, uh, we had just, you know, gone to a process where 
we were being more holistic and we implemented um, different committee um, processes within a sort of larger structure. Dr. Nakai was the dean at that point. We knew each other from our back, various backgrounds, her at Northwestern, me at University of Chicago. And we obviously knew a lot about the idea of what we thought would be a unique environment, um, kind of compelled by this idea of working together. That's how I ended up here. So in that first year, we kind of looked at the way things were were being applied. We thought that it would be great to have more perspective in terms of like what the institution values and, and obviously put that into the process of discerning who would be a good fit for the environment because you know, neither one of us came from a Catholic background. Um, you know, I, I'm married. I married a woman who is Catholic. My son's been baptized. So there's definitely Catholicism in the house. But, right. you know, in terms of like the Jesuit sort of uh, mission and adopting that as part of our process, it was something that we felt was very unique and, and it involved, it should involve the community as a whole. So bringing the community into the process was one thing that we both decided would be um, important. So, so what does that mean? Well, it means that you know, faculty, students, staff members are reviewing your file, doing so in a very comprehensive way to sort of get a sense for who you are. Um, you know, in order to sort of make sense of how that works, we implement a rubric process to evaluate various domains within each candidate's file, and they're all kind of similar. Um, and the evaluation of that yields another kind of consideration for whether or not an interview will be granted. So um, within the structure of that rubric, it's largely subjective, some of the details that you're evaluating, but ultimately you force a quantified metric to be um, the outcome of that. So in the sense that numbers are valued, we have to be able to evaluate this assessment in some way. So we do use metrics to do that, but, but it's, not, it's, it's not what most candidates would assume those metrics are. And I say metrics and immediately typical candidates will think, well, GPA, MCAT, like that's what you're using, but that's not it. Um, we create our own quantitative assessment within the evaluation and review. And it's a holistic evaluation. We start with the beginning of the application, go all the way to the end. A lot of the details we are able to articulate within the, the framework of the re- re- review rubric and the different parts therein. But we also leave behind this element where anyone who is part of this process can just, from their own perspective, say, I like this student because of this, or I think this student is... Maybe someone that would not be best suited to this environment because of this, right? So we have this sort of element of um, our own gut instinct about the candidate that we apply to this otherwise very sort of rubric-oriented process. And so that starts what we consider to be kind of the same type of process throughout the candidate cycle for each individual. So... By the time a candidate is actually selected for acceptance, we have seven eyes, seven sets of eyes on the candidate through review, interview, and then what we call selection, which is like a quality control perspective. And then from there, it's launched into the executive committee, which is, again, another 
group of evaluators, mostly faculty, who are able to kind of take all that information into account and just from that point vote. And it's not a quantitative kind of consideration. I mean, obviously, they're looking at a lot of different details, some of which are actually numeric, but a lot of it is, you know, qualitative. A lot of it is comments made in interview, what the gut feeling is from the interviewer's perspective, what a selector might think about the candidate from a, you know, gut perspective. So, and again, you know, I think that that's, that's the natural best way to do things. I mean, if you just created an algorithm to determine what your class should should look like or what your class should be like, then you're, you're not really sure, you know, you can trust numbers to some extent, but ultimately, even with the numbers that we have and the process that, again, is holistic, we still struggle to understand what those numbers mean. Now, the new MCAT, for example, I was hired when the new MCAT came on board. So that presented an opportunity a very significant opportunity to step away from something that had become pretty much part of the landscape of medical school admissions, which is to look at the MCAT, create a, uh, a partition, and evaluate only those students that had a certain uh, value within the scope of that exam. So it did force schools with a non-validated test to think more openly about how they were going to consider uh, candidates within their pool. So from that perspective, it was it was actually um, it was amenable to the committee. I mean, otherwise, I mean, if that change hadn't been in place, that test had not changed, it would have been harder to convince the committee to go in a different direction, I think, because they're just kind of settled into the way of, you know, this process works. Why are we tinkering with it? That kind of thing. So, yeah. So you kind of touched on my follow up question, which is in the same vein. But I think one of the most common myths out there, just information circulating, is that there's some magic algorithm for each school. That there's this MCAT score plus this GPA equals yeah. you getting an interview. And uh, it sounds like a more accurate assessment would be those scores plus a lot of other things about each candidate that might stick out, that might make you a very special candidate leads to a very different algorithm than what most people yeah. think is out there. Yeah, no, I think that's that's true. I mean, what's missing in any kind of algorithm is, uh, you know, that which is unknown. Mm-hmm. And what is fundamentally unknown in with regard to any application we get is the sincerity of the candidate. Right. The genuine interest the candidate has in your program and the genuine willingness that they would have to matriculate. I mean, ultimately, that's what every medical school is looking for. They're looking for the 100, 200, whatever their enrollment goal is. They're looking for that number of students that are interested and capable. And, and, and you know, if, if, you, if you could just find that, then the whole process would, would not need to be as comprehensive or as expensive or as detailed as it is. I mean, that's kind of the beauty of the match, Right. Um, the match is a very different process where, you know, there's there are a lot of formulas involved in determining the matches that are made, but ultimately it's all based on an algorithmic sense of preference. Right. Whereas, you know, medical schools, and I tell students this, you know, candidates this whenever they interview, like this is the greatest opportunity you will have to demonstrate your interest and to consider and think critically about your choices. 
because you have innumerable choices in this process. You can go allopathic, you can go osteopathic, you can do so concurrently, you can apply to 50 schools, you can apply to five schools. Whatever your methodology or your kind of intrinsic interest in the schools, we aren't really going to know. I mean, we're giving you an instrument to tell us that with the secondary or the supplemental. But, you know, we understand that students often create responses that they feel are going to be most received, well-received by the school. Yeah. So, you know, there is a, a tendency for, for that to become kind of what we see as maybe trying to indicate interest but not really have the interest. Ultimately, we also understand there are a lot of factors that go into the decision of any one candidate to matriculate to school, whether it's financial, whether it's regional, whether it's a partner or spouse, whatever the case may be. So uh, we can only ask so many questions of candidates to get at what those interests are, but ultimately we're hoping that candidates reveal that to us. So the best way to put a, a student in that situation is to make them feel comfortable, to make them fully aware of the of the resources around them, to, to give them different opportunities to speak to individuals who may be a part of that process. That's why we have our interview days, which are so enriched with students, our right. own students. Yeah. who see them, who talk to them, who understand their situation. We don't necessarily ask our students to report back to us what those conversations yield, but we do hope that those conversations help the candidate understand the considerations that the students made that they're talking to. And so hopefully that will resonate with them when they determine what's best for them, you know? Um, but yeah, I think that's the thing. I mean, that's the one thing that's missing is this sort of understanding of what the compelling interest is for the candidate. You know, are we a safety school? Are we a reach school? Whatever the case may be, at the end of the day, when we send out X number of offers, you know, our goal is to yield 170 students. So we have to do our best to make sure that we're not just, you know, if we just had a pyramid, we were to put all of our candidates into a pyramid of metrics based on MCAT and GPA, we would obviously get a top 5%. You know, we interview 5 to 6% of the pool. So we could take that top 5% and we could interview all of them and call it a day. But you know what? None of them may show up on right. day one. <laughs> so then we, you know, where does that leave us? So, you know, I mean, uh, from a practical perspective, it just makes sense to do your due diligence as an institution to find out as much as you can to create an environment where the candidates are able to not only describe and express their interest, but to visualize their interest within a place and to provide them with a mechanism to follow up. That's one thing I always felt was very important is this opportunity to feed back as a candidate, to feed back to the institution once you've completed the process. And I found it really weird, you know, and at Prisker, for example, when I was there, like that was not part of our, our, our process. We, we just kind of created a firewall. Once the candidate interviewed, we didn't want to hear from them. And from my perspective, that was always challenging because I didn't really know. I mean, how do you know that the candidate's even interested? If you're just assuming that based on the fact that they interviewed and they have good numbers, 
Well, you know, everyone's got good numbers and everyone showed up to interview. So, you know, at that point, there, there was a lot of information in the system. We had calculated odds. You know, this is kind of the, I, I don't mean to disparage UFC, but this is the UFC way to actually formulate, you know, a process that is quantitative to help you make those decisions. And I felt like that was effective for their pool. It's a much smaller class. There aren't as many variables. I mean, there are fewer variables involved. And then, of course, you have the ability to to resource the class by virtue of scholarship. So, I mean, that that levels the playing field in terms of interest. You may or may not be a very interested candidate, but if there's scholarship money on the table, guess what? You're interested. Right. You know? <laughs> so without without those types of compelling things – we don't have as much scholarship um we have a unique environment so it's it's just a matter of finding the right number of variables but but providing the opportunity for the candidate to be able to continually provide the understanding of those variables over the life cycle of the of the candidate which is typically one one cycle one candidate cycle or more for some I mean, that's, that's the uniqueness of this process. Mm-hmm. I'm sure all three of our ears perked up when you said scholarship money. Just now, <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I understand that is very compelling. That is uh, an absolute compelling thing now. I mean, when you talk about scholarship to a 20-year alum of Stretch or a 40-year alum of Stretch, they kind of look at you like, Really? There's scholarships for medical school now. Yeah. Right? But when you talk to a, 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 a candidate who is um, just starting the process, I mean, that's a very big consideration. Yeah. So what's what's changed? I mean, obviously, the tuition costs have changed. They've risen. Obviously, um, there's a much different perspective on debt. There's a much different perspective, perhaps, on the income viability of medicine because of some of the things that might be triggering um, this sort of idea of automation. You know, I think in every industry there is a concern that, you know, humans are superfluous and that they will be replaced by robots. And that this does not, this is not, um, this is still a consideration in medicine. I mean, I went to a conference that describe telemedicine as an option and, you know, using apps on your phone to simulate this sort of clinical experience. You know, I can take my blood pressure with my phone. I can, you know, study my heart rate, my brainwaves with my phone. My phone can basically manage my care. So, you know, and again, with all these other competing sort of interest PAs and et cetera coming on board, like there's this sort of notion from many that, well, my, my income pathways are going to be different than my parents or the people that have mentored me down this road. Uh, there's more competition for fewer opportunities. You know, this becomes the dynamic of any generation that is entering the workforce. They're concerned that they're going to have viability as as professionals, but but I, I think that that's kind of an erroneous argument, at least from my perspective at this point. You know, in 50 years, we could be talking about something totally different, um, but there's great viability in being a, a healthcare professional. There's great um, benefits to this path that you're taking, but it is scary to consider 
the challenge and risk of taking on debt without the absolute certainty that you can complete the process successfully. And I think that's just the anxiety of, of many young people these days who, who I think struggle to kind of understand their own strengths in, in, in large part because there's so much competing information out there to challenge their assertions, you know? I didn't necessarily have that growing up. I certainly didn't have it in my face 24-7 with my blue screen, you know? So, you know, I think that's, that's another part of it too. Yeah. I think it'd be really valuable for listeners to hear from you how and when and in what ways is it professional and effective for applicants to advocate for themselves to, going off what you were saying before, explain to the school how much they love the school. Yeah. And what are some ways that applicants can do this? Mm-hmm. How we phrased this was whether or not it's professional and or useful to communicate with admissions committee members before and or during the application process. Is this something that would be appropriate at, say, a med school tour or a medical school fair? These opportunities that even like the AMC puts forth for mm-hmm. students mm-hmm. to talk about that. Well, it's interesting you're asking that question, Emily, I know. because I met you before. <laughs> um, I even got eyes on your application. And, and without that introduction from someone I know, mm-hmm. um, who's to say, right? Mm-hmm. So, I, yeah, I think it is appropriate. I think it's, I think, you know, we're all humans involved in this process. Again, that's the benefit of having humans involved. You don't rely on computers to make connections with people necessarily. Um, there's a lot of trust that goes into um, working in this in this environment, working with educators, working with professionals, advisors, etc. And we and we form those relationships over, relationships over time, and we trust those individuals, um, particularly when they when they feel compelled to let us know that they have someone that would be a good fit for our environment. Because again, there's there's information, there's knowledge that is passed along over the years to make that known. But yeah, I mean, there's an appropriateness to it. There's also an inappropriateness to it. So I was at a conference this past weekend. Um, the AAMC has a, uh, an annual conference, and there's a recruiting fair component associated with that. I was surprised. Um, f- on the one hand, I, I met a candidate who, um, and again, my assumption is always whenever these fairs take place, they take place in a city where the convention is being held. I'm never really quite sure what the marketing is for, for candidates to be present at that fair. I know that they're, get, they're encouraged to be present, but you know, I mean, often you consider it'll just be local kind of considerations. You wouldn't necessarily see people from a great distance coming to an event in Phoenix, for example. But I met a lot of people, candidates who were flying from Florida because they knew I was gonna be there. And they wanted to meet me. And um, I think that was the first time I, I, that's actually ever happened to me. And so, you know, one of the things I kind of consider is, okay, so I've been a dean since February. So obviously, you know, just as a director, maybe people just aren't as interested in, in getting to know me. But I, I, was, I was interested in, in sort of that idea of, of thinking about how candidates lock into a particular school or lock into a particular mission and and find value in it and want to demonstrate their interest. So again, you know, I think that that 
for me, I mean, I was impressed with the fact that they knew about me and they knew about our school and they made that effort to, right. to make contact. And it does compel me to go back to the office and, and kind of look at their file and see if there's anything I can do to encourage review. I don't have the ability to just make an outright offer to a candidate. I think that's important to know. I mean, it's not like, you know, undergraduate admissions at USC, ha, ha, ha. Um, but, um, you know, I, you know, I, it's a process. It's a committee process. So I can advocate for, for a particular candidate to get a review uh, and even in some cases to compel an interview. But, you know, as far as the decision goes, it's a, it's, we, we like the fact that the way that it's structured um, does not give any one person the opportunity to kind of force a candidate into an accepted position. So with that being said, there are lots of different mechanisms for this advocacy. Uh, we, Like I said, we encourage candidates to update their file. We don't advertise it. I guess I'm advertising it now. But um, we have a mechanism for that to occur naturally within the system. So this should mean that a candidate who's savvy enough would not have to call us or email us or stalk us in the parking garage. This actually has happened before. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> so, I mean, they have a way to let us know their academic, personal, and professional progress over the course of the cycle. Um, often before they apply, students will track me down. They'll call me. They'll email me. Oh, I saw you here. I saw you speak at this. You know, I read this. You know, I you know. So, and obviously that's that's natural because we put our information on the website. We put our contact information out there. So we should expect students, candidates, to respond. And we have a way to to handle those situations. We provide visit days. So a candidate that really is interested, if they want to just come to Chicago and show up for one of these visit days, you know, we had one today. Again, that's another great way to get to know us, to um, to see the, the, the campus, to talk to students. So we try to uh, encourage the appropriate ways to do that, right? We encourage communication uh, through our website, through our visit days. We encourage participation in different programs like Aspire. Uh, we recruit, you know, that's, that's, you know, something a lot of schools don't do, but you know, we, we're out on the road. We have three count, two counselors, well, actually one counselor, one associate director and myself who are on the road, uh, for m much of the fall and early spring. Uh, we go to various sites. This year is the first time I've actually heard candidates ask me where I'm going to be, if I'm going to be at a in a particular state at a recruiting event. So it's actually forced us to consider, do we publish um, on our website the sites that we're going to be visiting? There's, I mean, there's, I mean, it seems reasonable to assume that that would be okay, but then there's, you know, there's the sort of con consideration of, well, if it's a private event or if it's a fair that is associated or affiliated with a particular school, does that then put a burden on that school or that program to facilitate this interest from this candidate? Again, that could lead to something that may not necessarily be appropriate. So, you know, we still have to think about how we're going to do that. You know, I, I feel like, uh, you know, I have like LinkedIn. I have a LinkedIn account. Um, I, I constantly have candidates who uh, want to be my LinkedIn connection. Uh, I've just made it a point not to connect with anyone that I feel is a candidate. 
I mean, I'll connect with students, I'll connect with alum, but I try not to introduce that because I feel like that is inappropriate. It's inappropriate to connect with someone professionally who you don't really know. Um, similarly for like Facebook, uh, I definitely would not friend someone on Facebook who was a candidate. Um, I would feel like that would be kind of overreaching. But obviously, I mean, I, I try to limit my social media exposure. I don't have an Instagram. I don't have a Twitter anyone can find. Okay. I have my protest Twitter account. So no one can find me, Emily. Okay. Right. Okay. I'll believe you. Because <laughs> everyone needs to have their own personal, private social media experience without. Right. And again, it's a professional consideration. So. You know, like I said, I have students on my Facebook account. You're all welcome to friend me on Facebook. I will similarly do the same. I'm quiet in other areas because I feel like that's appropriate. But again, I always tell students or candidates who become um, uh, candidates in any given cycle that they should really kind of consider what they want to be known about them through social media, what they want their social professional considerations to look like because I know for a fact there's medical schools out there that do take a look at that. You know, they will Google a, a candidate in a heartbeat. In one instance, when I was at my uh, other institution, we had one member of our committee that would always Zillow the address of a candidate, especially if they said that they were underserved or disadvantaged because he wanted to see their house. Mm. Yeah. Well, this candidate has a pool in their backyard. <laughs> yeah. How could they be disadvantaged, right? Wow. Right. I don't do that, but... Like I said, I wouldn't, it, this is a human process, you know, yeah. people are naturally curious, right? And if you put something out there that invokes concern, risk, or interest, then you can bet someone's going to follow up, right? you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's all really interesting. Thanks, yeah, mm -hmm. for, you know, speaking to the professional and not as professional ways that applicants can interact with admissions committee, because I think a lot of people wonder about that when also trying to think about how they can best leverage right. their argument for why they deserve an interview at that school or why they, why they deserve an ultimate acceptance. Right. And the thing is, you can overdo it. You can right. easily close a door that was open by virtue of being a little bit more <laughs> effusive about your own interests in an inappropriate way than someone who is very subtle about it and takes advantage of the mechanisms provided, right? There's a candidate we were talking about today who who keeps calling the office, right? Mm. And, and Latrice Williams is our admin, and she's like, this student keeps calling. And I know that student's name, and it's not good if I know your name. From and, that reason. And you're not in the interview pool because this is a candidate who applied last cycle who did the same thing, right? Just incessantly called and tried to, you know, talk to me directly and I talked to him a few times and then, you know, the process went forward and he was not interviewed and, you know, we provide a mechanism for candidates who don't get interviews. You know, you have reapplicant counseling as an option. You can call up our office, set up an appointment with one of our counselors and get counseling on what your, the consideration of your file was, but there's an appropriate time to do that. We, we set aside those conversations for the spring because we understand what our schedule is like and it just is the best time to be able to focus on that. Right. 
But if you don't do that and you continue to just seek me as a resource to, you know, at any time of the year to say, like, what's going on? Why didn't I get in? Can you help me? Then it becomes a little bit um, less appropriate and often can can definitely damage any kind of efficacy in terms of a future application. I mean, like I said, if it sticks in my head as a as a negative then I start thinking about, well, what happens if this this candidate becomes a student, doesn't do well on an exam, and goes to the professor, and the professor you know, like tries to help them, and then they keep, you know, repeating the process, or you know, I mean, it just it does it just evokes something that professionally might go awry in the future, and we're and again, you know, that's kind of the consideration here. Like my background, I'm not an MD, but we have MDs on our committee that are fully aware of some of the behaviors of residents and clerks and their, their own professional staff that they've seen that are negative. And they, and they kind of see some of these behaviors in candidates and they're like, no, we just can't have that. So I take their lead on understanding some of those behaviors and have understood a lot of those behaviors over time. So again, you know, there's, there's a definite distinction between being uh, excited and, and, and being um, inspired to be a good candidate and then just kind of being a little bit more than that. Right. I mean, desperation often becomes a behavior that does not suit a candidate well. Mm-hmm. And I know that it's difficult and I know that it's challenging, but I, but I also, like when I do talk to candidates, I really try to impress upon them, like you really need to think about like your your application, but you also need to think about where you're applying, and you and you need to think strategically about you know if I didn't get a, an offer, I actually met a young woman a couple years ago. She applied to eighty schools. You know oh, wow. how difficult that is to do. Yeah, eighty schools. All those essays. Got no, yeah, received no interviews. Wow. So she came to my office and I met with her, and and she wanted me to look at her application from the previous cycle, and she wanted me to explain to her why she didn't get a seat. Now, she didn't apply to us, um, which was odd. And she asked, yeah. she, knocked well, on, she, she knocked on your door. Yes, because she was thinking about applying in the next cycle to us. Okay. But of the 85 <laughs> previous, we were not one of them. So she brings me her application, and I look it over. And, you know, I mean, the, the thing that I realized is that, you know, I mean, yeah, there were some – there were some qualitative things that were amiss about her application. There were some experiences that I don't know. I question, uh, and you know, it was a rough academic trajectory for her, but, but the bottom line is, um, I, I didn't really get a sense that she really knew why she wanted to be in medicine or why she wanted to go through this. I mean, it seemed like she was really interested in getting a seat, but it didn't really seem clear why or what was compelling her Hmm. but i see a lot of that i see a lot of that kind of anxiety among candidates uh so you know my background is that you know in teaching i try to help candidates i I feel like the the way that we do our counseling and our advising is sort of a teaching methodology that we apply um and i i believe that it is helpful you know, I've, I've actually seen it work. I've seen candidates who were not successful in one cycle go through a reapplicant counseling process and successfully, um, you know, matriculate in, in, in the following cycle. So it does work, but you have to be um, patient. 
appropriate. You have to take the advice you're given. You have to implement that advice. A lot of times it's really about just tailoring your search to the most appropriate schools on your list, not just grandly, you know, applying in a very broad way. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of lots of evidence to support that advising works. And sometimes that doesn't that doesn't present itself as an option for students who are coming from, you know, post-bac programs or more specifically like long periods of, of, of being out of school and then going back into the applicant cycle or going to a graduate program that is not specifically designed to provide that advising structure. Mm-hmm. So, and we see that a lot more now. We see a lot more students going back to school, getting graduate degrees, and, and sometimes it doesn't engender sort of knowledge about how to be the right or the best type of medical school applicant. So, so we open our door for that purpose. Neighbors, I just wanted to follow up on what you said about, you know, maybe how students could better tailor which schools they apply to. Mm-hmm. Um, I know as a pre-med, I, I often heard, you know, look at your MCAT, look at your GPA, look at MSAR and see where you, you know, are on that scale. But, you know, maybe instead of like a shotgun approach, is there uh, maybe a more helpful way that students can figure out where they uh, would, you know, be a better fit at as, as a student? Well, I don't think there's any magical solution to that. I mean, I think it it does incorporate a lot of things you've already mentioned. I think it really does start with the individual though. I think I think the more self-aware you are about your your strengths and your weaknesses, about your limitations, about your your capacity for the type of environment you you thrive in, like all of those things matter. So, I mean, medical schools are very different. I mean, I I can tell you kind of from my own perspective, the, the sort of subtle distinctions of each of the allopathic schools in the city of Chicago, uh, medical schools. And I, can, and I can say, you know, I can look at an application and I can see where a student might be better suited at one of those schools than us because, you know, they're just, the way that they describe their experiences, the way that, you know, those experiences kind of lay out it does kind of give you a sense that the mission of another school might be a better match, but, but they're in our pool, right? So often that is a question that is there, you know, a reviewer will look at the file and then they will just, the last comment they'll say, they'll, they'll leave on the um, assessment is why us? Again, that leads to the sort of idea that maybe we're a safety school, maybe they're a better fit somewhere else, but they're just utilizing all of the schools as their safety net. So with respect to how you make the decision, again, it starts with yourself. It starts with understanding your strengths, your weaknesses. It starts with kind of understanding how a particular institution will kind of embolden your strengths, maybe help compensate for some of those weaknesses. I know that sometimes that is a consideration. Um, Many students don't necessarily recognize their weaknesses. So, you know, I think that that's important. I mean, it's a very competitive, high-achieving pool. You know, when, when I go as a student doctor and I, and I see the self-doubt creep in, you know, I see metrics create this sort of illusion of security. You know, my Lizzie score is yeah this and i still don't know what that is but, but <laughs> there, there seems to be Some like this calculator yeah this solace in identifying you know if i didn't get an interview but you did what are your numbers what's your lizzie score right 
And, oh, well, okay, now I understand. But do you really? So, you know, I think that I certainly think visiting a program, I think that's one of the reasons why we made that opportunity available to visit our program. Uh, Obviously, going to recruitment fairs, there, there are ample opportunities to get to know the people that represent the various medical schools to get a sense for who those who those individuals are, what those schools represent. Again, I think advising is important, trying to find an advisor that has a knowledge about the different programs, and that might be a, an, another layer of expense, but I think it's one that if you, if you want to do it right and you have been out of school for quite some time and you don't have that kind of anchor in your home institution because maybe you weren't a pre-med, finding a resource like that can help center you. And certainly if you are an undergrad and you're not a pre-med major, this doesn't mean that you can't be a good candidate, but it definitely means that you're carving, you've left behind some resources that might actually be able to put you in front of different medical schools more often, whether it be through uh, individual recruiters coming to campus or, or site visits or just information. I know every time I talk to an advisor, I'm leaving them with information and cards so that candidates can contact me. You know, I think about my, just my undergraduate experience. You know, I, I, I went to a school sight unseen. Mm. My parents thought I was nuts, yeah. but you know, I got a scholarship to go to the big state school. I had visited that school the year before for a summer program, lived on campus for a month. There was no reason to think that I would go anywhere else. And then, and yet I picked this school that was sight unseen and my parents thought I was nuts. And when they asked me why I chose that school, I said, well, they called me three times, three different people yeah. and asked me about what my interests were. On one hand, they knew what my interests were and they said, well, we know you're interested in this and hey, you know that you can actually do this here. That kind of communication which was largely not a part of the other program, right? I mean, yeah, it was, we'll give you a scholarship, but you know, one size fits all, come on in, you know? So I think that there is something to the idea that if you are able to find schools that do have some measure of uh, reciprocating your interest by following up and trying to get to know you to some extent, I think that does help. Obviously that's not gonna work for every student, but, um, but then, of course, you know, if a student does come to me and they, and they say that they're interested and they want to meet with me before they apply, and I do make that invitation to candidates. I say, you know, before you submit your application, you know, send me your personal statement. We'll, we'll have a chat. You know, at that point, I can kind of give them advice. You know, I can maybe redirect them if I don't feel like they're going to be strong candidates in our program. Um, but that's kind of a professional way of doing it. I know that there are a lot of ways that may be perceived as shortcuts. The MSAR is a good tool, but, you know, again, it's quantified data. I mean, there's, there, there are some qualitative aspects of schools that you can compare. You can slice and dice, but ultimately that should lead you to a higher level of investigation and, and, and communication with that school. If you've, if you've gone to the MSAR and identified 15 schools that you feel like might be a good fit, call them. You know, um, see if they're responsive to your questions. You know, if they're not, then maybe, 
maybe that's a sign, you know? Mm-hmm. So it sounds like it's really important to at least have had have a good understanding of each of the schools you apply to instead right. of shotgun approach. Right, because they don't think about it. When you're matching with a school and you haven't gotten to this point yet, but when you do your match, you're going you're gonna to do everything you can to get to know the culture of that program. You're going to try to talk to residents or uh, students who've participated in a ways. You're going to try to do in a way. Like you're going to rank the programs. You're going to want to do in a way at a program because that's – you're you're on the, on the top of your list and as and for one month you're going to be on that campus and you're going to be living the life of a clerk you're going to be able to see all the things you need to see and talk to all the people you need to talk to and, and get a sense for the, the the city and the place and all of that will have significance as you determine your match so why not apply some measure of that process the beginning of medical school of your medical exper- school experience to finding your medical school home. I mean, I think that's the way you have to look at it. But but often I don't I don't really think that candidates kind of see that. They they don't they don't actually see like that part of the process. Like 4 years from now I'm going to be trying to match. Yeah. So I need to start thinking about ways that I can inventory my my needs, my wants in a way that's going to benefit me then, right? So I think that's part of the professional application of thought you have to apply to medical school because it is a cycle. It's a cycle that begins year one and then starts up again in year, really year three. Yeah. As you start thinking about your clerkship rotations and eventually your, your sub eyes and aways. Yeah. So we're hoping to switch gears a bit now to the MCAT a bit more, delving into that subject, which makes a lot of people nervous, um, just that word alone. So one particular question we have is how taking the MCAT multiple times, and perhaps this could consider within a certain time frame as well, affects one one's application to medical school. What sort of things should one consider when deciding to retake the MCAT or when deciding how to frame their MCAT experience to a medical school. And I know a bunch of medical schools from what I recall with applying to med school, including Loyola, has a question on the secondary asking if there's anything else you'd like us to know when considering your application. And I viewed that as an opportunity per se to discuss um, the MCAT and I think a lot of other people do too. So if you could yeah, share some wisdom about the MCAT, I think that'd be great. Well, yeah, the MCAT is, uh it's a big source of anxiety, but I think it's also um, indicative of what medical school has largely become. Uh, it's become a, a very assessment-heavy process. You can't escape the exam. From day one, that's the first thing on your plate is to prepare for an exam. And it's the last thing you'll do, you know, CS. CK, step two, you know, out the door. Yeah. So, so you can't hide from assessments, and, you, and, and ultimately you don't really have a, a great deal of time to adjust to the rigor of medical school to figure out how to navigate the realm of assessment. I mean, it's just you either have the ability to take tests or you don't. 
and again, obviously, content aside, you know, there tends to be a pretty rigorous application of time and effort from most candidates to taking not just the MCAT, but all the other tests that have created an, an evaluation or an academic trajectory or trend for them. So, so when you see a candidate do very well in undergrad but, but struggle on the MCAT, it leads you to think, well, what's going on here? What is, the, what is ultimately the consideration for not doing as well as maybe we would have anticipated? Is it the rigor of the academic program? Is it anxiety over the test? Was it an illness? So again, you know, like giving the candidate the opportunity to help us understand that and that individual instance of a, an exam and that very rare instance where one exam has been taken and there's been a misstep and no consequent exam, right? But now what we're seeing is we're starting to identify through multiple exams, perhaps a pattern of behavior, right? So if I see a candidate uh, submit an application and they're interviewed and I'm looking at three or four different exams and I see a progression, let's say they start off at a 495 and the last exam is a 507, I may ask the candidate to help me understand what they did in incremental sort of phases to improve on the first exam. So I'm, I'm looking for, again, the self-awareness and understanding of weakness. Well, I was maybe not focusing the right way. Maybe I wasn't studying the right way. I changed my study methods. You know, I'm looking for a constructive understanding of how the candidate moves on, improves from something that may not have been a positive outcome. I mean, that's a behavior that will stick with the candidate throughout their entire academic career. Right. And it's a positive. You know, you want you want there to be, okay, I didn't do so well, self-reflection. You, you want them to be able to look at the resources that can help them. I went and sought help from this resource, from that resource. Uh, you want them to be able to understand if they had to change or adapt, right? So I changed this study habit or I changed this, whatever. So that's a process that you're looking for. You're looking for that. And if that proves to be successful, then it doesn't necessarily give you as much consternation that the candidate will, will have another misstep. Or if they did have a misstep, that at least they would be able to recover because they've done this before. So, so I think that's fundamentally what the test does reveal uh, in many ways. So let's put a couple of different scenarios in place there. Let's take a candidate who has done absolutely well in undergrad, gone to you know a graduate program and done very well, and then they take the MCAT once and they don't do well. And they don't take it again. They submit their application with that one exam, right? The committee is going to look at that and they're going to, the first thing they're going to say is, why didn't they take the MCAT again? It tells us something. It tells us that regardless of this academic progression of success, that test has demonstrated to be a weakness. And there may not be a self-awareness on the candidate's part to understand that that's what we're seeing, right? We're seeing, we're seeing a lack of self-awareness and knowing that this is going to be a concern for a committee. And 
despite what you may think, it's an important consideration to try your best to remediate this. Because ultimately, that's the only way we can know that you're going to be able to handle the rigor of medical school. Because without the self-awareness, without the ability to adapt, without the ability to seek and ask for help, you're not going to make it in medical school for the most part. So again, that's what that may demonstrate. Repetitive exams, again, given the amount of time between exams, that's the thing I look at. If I see a candidate that's taken an exam five times, I'm going to look at the duration of time between each exam. If these five, five exams happen in one year, I'm going to be real concerned, right? Because what it tells me is that, sure, there was a self-awareness on the candidate's part to retake the exam because they knew they didn't do well. But where is the adaptation? How much time did they allow themselves exactly. to adapt exactly. and reflect and right. find resources? Exactly. It must have been, like, this is super exaggerated, but like overnight they took the exam again. Exactly, exactly. So I'm concerned that those have not, those two criteria have not been applied. And so subsequently my, my impression is that the candidate would maybe not do well in a, in a course exam, maybe hide, not ask for help, go back into the next exam with the same thought process, the same application of, of strategy to take the exam and fail again. So again, we're not, we don't look for that as an outcome of success for any candidate. We want, we want successful candidates. We want to know that you have the, the content knowledge and the application of that knowledge to succeed. And if you hit a, you know, a stumbling block or a misstep that you have the ability to bounce back, you know, there are definite behaviors that are obvious in a resilient character profile that, that lead us to think that challenge can be overcome. And, you know, again, when you're talking about this in the application of basic science, it doesn't stop in the clinical years because you go into these clerkships fully aware of your, of the sense of being evaluated in a subjective way, but then you have, you know, your shelf exams. And, and again, if the barrier is, to do well around patients, but then the struggle with those exams. And again, that's another barrier to success. And of course, you know, the big grand consideration is the step exams, right? Because again, you can, you can progress naturally the same way your classmates typically do to get to that point where you're ready to take the exam. But what we're starting to see in many cases across not just not just stretch, but across the board with other medical schools, is students getting to the point where they should be ready to take the step exam, but then they're saying, no, you know what, I'm not ready. I need time, I need more time. And I mean, that's good. It's good that they're self-aware to understand that maybe they need that, that time. But again, medical school is rigorous and it's fast-paced. And the more you stop and restart your engine, the more time goes by. And, and again, that may not always be in the best interest of the student, right? Because it could lead to additional expense. It could lead to additional anxiety. You know, who's to say how a student is going to successfully navigate that when they're no longer in the same grouping as their peers, when they're no longer 
seeking the advice and counsel of their of, of staff or resources to help them. This happens a lot. You know, students will, you know, you're given protected time to study for the, the step exam, and, and sometimes they disappear for longer periods than expected, right? I used to always make the joke about the Fortress of Solitude, right? I don't know if you remember the old Superman movie, but Superman used to go to the, he, he you know, like things wouldn't go right. Lex Luthor would get the best of him, and he'd just like fly off to the fortress somewhere in the, in the South Pole, Pole, right? Or the North, North Pole. Pole. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Nobody knows where it is. He's flying there. No one's following him. And he just holed up for like years, right? And people are like, where's Superman? <laughs> you know, where this big monster is going to eat us. Where's Superman? You know, Superman's just chilling in the fortress. So, so, I mean, I think that's sort of an analogy to sort of kind of help, you know, maybe uh, your audience understand that, you know, it's natural to have challenge. It's natural for us to fail. No struggle would be complete without some degree of anxiety about failure, but ultimately you have to be able to find a way to be resilient in the face of adversity. And ultimately those behaviors start before you've applied to medical school. So a lot of times that's what we're looking for in the application. And this MCAT does tend to be more than many things, a very significant sign of anxiety, a very significant burden among those uh, who take it. Um, I mean, it's they're never, I mean, I think I may have had maybe three candidates in my entire 17 year career in, in medical school admissions say, I really loved the MCAT. Boy, wow. that was a great <laughs> test. Right. You know? I think some people, when preparing to take the MCAT, decide to take time off to study for the exam mm -hmm. like you just mentioned mm -hmm. with students wanting to do that first step and yeah. also potentially for the MCAT. So we were wondering how Loyola's admissions committee or admissions committees in general view an applicant's decision to take time off either from college or to devote X number of months or even a year during a gap year to solely focus on the MCAT at the compromise of other activities, other studies, et cetera? Well, that's a good question. That happens uh, to be a, a pretty pervasive consideration. Um, it's significantly grown the number of candidates who take uh, a growth year or a gap year to prepare for medical school. Um, in some cases, they're taking that time to remediate grades they feel may not suit them well in their in their application so they may enter a, a graduate program or a post-bac program maybe they weren't able to you know take on as many healthcare exposure activities in undergrad because they were working or they were an athlete or whatever the case may be so they're going to take the full benefit of that that gap year to improve upon those things in their application i always assert that you want your application to be as complete as possible when you submit it. So if you're if you're if you submit your application and then allow the gap year to be your applicant cycle year, then what benefit does it give you in terms of your application? So I would say that if you're going to do that, then the gap year or the bridge year um, should be one where you're just making yourself ready whatever whatever needs to happen whether it's working whether it's spending time with family whether it's you know multiple yoga retreats or whatever the case may be um 
you know, building efficacy for your desire to work with people, whether that be through extended volunteerism, uh, working in service for others. I mean, those, those are very practical and, and, and reasonable things to consider in terms of that time. You know, I don't have a magic answer for what is the best thing a candidate should be doing with that with that year off or multiple years off. But I always tell candidates that they need to think about their readiness for medical school. And ultimately, if they feel like they are going to have one application to medical school and they don't think that that application is ready at the beginning of that at that time period, that they need to be thinking about how best to improve on their application. So taking time away um, or, or dedicated time to study for the MCAT, I think is a very reasonable consideration because that's what you're going to have in medical school. And I, and I think that the more you can approximate what to expect in medical school prior to medical school, the better off you are. And this is why I think post-bac programs that provide students with the first year uh, curriculum, I mean, that they're building the sort of muscle memory necessary to succeed in medical school because they're helping you anticipate and understand what to expect, right? So the the person who devotes time to study for the MCAT is ultimately doing exactly what most medical schools are going to expect and provide. Time to focus on strategies and adapting to a test environment that is typically not the same as your coursework exam environment. Um, and that's intentional. I think ultimately there is a reason why, you know, good programs don't necessarily teach to the test, right? I think you want to teach to the context of the test, but you don't want to teach to the exam because ultimately what are you, how are you benefiting any level of critical thinking if that's what you're doing? I have seen students struggle on the car section of the exam. I think that becomes one thing that is harder to supplement in a gap year. And the reason I say that is because one of the things that the CARS uh, subsection does help us understand is critical thinking, synthesis of information that is outside the realm of science. So there's a tendency for students to do very well on the chemical, physical, uh, and the biological foundations of, of medicine, but struggle in the cars, particularly if they don't have a lot of humanities in their background or if there's they didn't come from an integrated degree program. So in that sense, I would say that, you know, if you're attacking one subsection of the exam, first of all, I'd say that's probably not the best way to prepare for the exam because ultimately what will happen is that other sections will drop, even though that will go up in the subsequent exam. Right. You always want to kind of address the entire exam in a reapplic in a in a retest situation. So taking the time to uh, kind of underscore your strengths, but then also giving yourself plenty of time to attack what you might think is the weakness of your exam outcomes in the previous test. How do you do that with cars? Well, it, I think it involves uh, a great deal of understanding how you read information, how you take information in, how you're able to examine long passages. Then again, you can practice those types of uh, questions, uh, or you can read journal articles and try to synthesize details on your own. I think that those are, are reasonable approaches to take. Um, but again, you know, seeking resources to help you, again, 
I mean, that might be the best way to go. So if you self-studied for the exam and the first iteration of the exam that you took, um, change that up. Find a, an outside resource to help you. Study in a group. You know, you can take the Kaplan course. You can do a lot of different things to find a different way to approach the, the, the subsections or approach the content um, or the strategies necessary. But you should definitely modify your study techniques that I think is the best way to approach, you know, kind of re studying or readapting to the, the exam process. Um, because it largely doesn't seem to really work when you try to just go at one area of the exam to improve. It, it does jeopardize often other areas. Dean Neighbors, I'd like to ask you a question about uh, committee letters from one's undergraduate university. Um, if someone's university has a committee that writes letters, but the committee doesn't agree to write the uh, applicant one, it, does that put the applicant at a disadvantage or you know, is it a potentially a red flag for the medical school? I was curious how you know, that looked in terms of the admissions eyes. Well, if the committee is refusing to write the letter, then yeah, I think that would be a red flag. Um, ultimately, we we have a way to understand if your if your school has a committee letter process. So you know, fundamentally, if if I see that a candidate has refused, and, and typically what we see in the application is that we we see the candidate either accepting or refusing the committee letter. We don't often mm. hear from the committee that they've refused to give a committee letter. Does that make sense? So if I, if I look to see that a candidate has refused to accept their committee letter, they have um, a, a mechanism to help us understand why that is, you know, and, and we compel them to tell us, why did, you, why did you pass on the committee letter? In most cases, what they'll say is that, you know, well, I, you know, I wasn't a true pre-med, you know, I, I didn't opt in, you know, because most committee letters are going to be compelled by, again, behavior. You know, go to these meetings, go to this interview, fill out these forms, that sort of thing. So there's a process involved. So opting out of that process is the thing that we're interested in understanding. And that's an important consideration because remember, you know, everything that we're looking at in the application approximates something that will be part of medical school consideration. So if you consider the committee letter to be akin to your your candidate letter for for um, residency, right? You're going to be asked to do a lot of things mm -hmm. before you meet with the dean of students to prepare for that letter. That's a that's that letter is your lifeline to the residency program that you want to get into. And if you opt out of that, if you opt out of that process, guess what? It's going to be really tough for you to get a match. It's really it's going to be especially tough for you to get the match you want. So, in establishing an understanding of why you've opted out, it's important to know why you've opted out. So, you know, in most cases, it's not an intentional sort of thing because you didn't want the letter. You just missed the window in terms of a process. You know, I had to do this. I had to do this, and I just wasn't able to. You know, or I wasn't a pre-med, so I, you know, or I transferred in, you know, I transferred into this school and I missed the boat on 
you know, the first iteration of this onboarding process. You know, there's 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 students who go to uh, very large state schools. Uh, the UC, the University of California schools in particular are pretty pretty famous for not having great advising, and as such, don't have committee letters or may not have a process that's reasonable for the candidate. But we you know we have a lot of candidates from the University of California system, so and a lot of your classmates <laughs> come to us. So so this is to say that, you know, because of the fact that they don't have the committee letter does not necessarily disadvantage them in the process. But but I think what would disadvantage a candidate is knowing that, like, for, for example, Notre Dame. Notre Dame has a very, very good process in terms of their advising. And so their committee letter has a lot of meaning. Hmm. So if I'm if I'm interviewing a candidate and they did not get a letter a letter from their advisor at Notre Dame, then I'm going to ask why. And it's likely going to be something that is going to be important because especially if you have a large group of students from any particular program and there's a level of advocacy for those candidates from those advisors and then you have someone that's, that didn't get that advocacy, it's, that's, that's when it hurts them. It hurts them significantly because now they're the outlier. You know, I've got 50 candidates in my pool, you know, 25 of whom we've interviewed, and one of those 25 doesn't have committee advocacy from, you know, that school, which we, you know, know very well and, and trust. Yeah. So are we going to trust that candidate? You know, it may be a call. It may be a call to the school. So I've got, you know, this candidate here. And, you know, this is not, you know, the, the thing that you also, as a candidate, give us permission to do is you give the admissions offices com complete and total discretion to contact anyone that's a part of your application process. And by virtue of that, by saying that you opted out, and again, we asked the question very specifically on the application, on the supplemental, who is the advisor? Does your school provide a committee letter, yes or no? Did you opt out of that process, yes or no? Okay, so you provided us with the information. You've said, no, I did not participate in that. So we can call the, we can call the advisor. Now, I don't do that a lot, but, I mean, I could. And ultimately, that's the thing that you have to be willing to understand as a part of this, right? Maybe they expected of you. And that is telling for us, you know. Again, we're thinking about a process that's very structured and necessary to provide success for you throughout this process to get you into residency. And that's the goal of every medical school. So if we don't feel like you have the, the proper mentality or the behaviors established to do that. And it's going to be hard for us to figure out at some point how or where you're going to learn that in medical school. Medical school can teach you a lot of things, but there are lots of behaviors, empathy, you know, compassion, these things that we look for, again, by virtue of understanding those who know you, right? And the best people that tend to tell us those things are the people that are your advisors that have met with you from your freshman year all the way to your senior year that have talked to you, interviewed you, have seen you at your worst times, have seen you at your best times. Like those are the folks that we trust to really understand you. Are we going to understand or trust 
the word of a professor that had you in one class over someone that has known you over four years? Probably not, right? So, so I think that's the thing that you miss out on if you forego that. For, um, especially for those of our students who might have needed a couple gap years, they wanted to take some time off. Mm-hmm. Um, is it okay that they would have older committee letters, um, you know, just because they were out of school for a little bit? Or would you have preferred uh, they have more recent letters from different people? Well, again, I think that's part of the evaluation on the student's part of determining what is the best way to spend that, that gap year. Uh, if you're working, if you're part of a, a research program, um, the advocacy you get from that longitudinal experience serves the same purpose. You know, your PI telling us about your acquisition of methods, the implementation of those methods in their lab, and the efficacy of your, of your work in that lab. I mean, that tells us a longitudinal story, one of trust, one of reciprocal viability within that, within that process. They helped you, you helped them, you, they understand you from the personal perspective of growth, and they are able to advocate for that growth. Again, if you, if you are going into a post-bac program or a graduate program, that's one of the things that I would try to figure out from the get-go. I mean, again, if the goal is to get to medical school and the goal is to kind of utilize that experience in terms of improving your options and your, and your potential for a medical school seat, then finding out what kind of advocacy comes with it what kind of process of advising is part of that that experience. I mean, those are things you should be asking. You shouldn't take it for granted uh, because some of those programs are better than others at advocating for their students. You know, we have um, our MAMS and our MSMP programs here, and they write great letters, great letters for those students. And they're coming from graduate programs that are, helping prepare them for medical school. And and those letters speak to that development and that growth. But will every program do that? No. So again, it just behooves the candidate to really explore those considerations more carefully before they pay whatever they're going to pay to go into those programs, expecting something that maybe isn't part of that process. Um, So, Dean Neighbors, a lot of our listeners are um, presumably pre-meds or thinking about applying to medical school or might be in the process right now. And so just wondering if you had one key takeaway or a couple main points that you would want them to know from listening to this podcast, what would you say? Well, I would say that, you know, the thing, again, to think about constructively is adopting a model of professional behavior that will that you can easily fit into your desire to become a physician. I think that is pervasively the thing that I hear most when I talk to physicians and faculty um, and administrators is really not mostly from this academic perspective, but from this behavioral perspective the behaviors that become a physician or become a person who is seeking to become a physician. You know, I was in a meeting just the other day with, uh, with, with faculty who were talking about outcomes from program directors, residency program directors surveyed to tell us about why or if they would want our 
our graduates in their programs. Uh, by and large, they said yes. Yeah. But they weren't saying yes because they can test well. They weren't saying yes because quant- they were quantified to be more intelligent than anyone else. They were saying yes because they were leaders. They were saying yes because they have an ethic of care and compassion for their patients. They were saying yes because they work well with a team. They're good collaborators. They're saying yes because they show up on time for work. They were saying yes because of a lot of behaviors and things that are part of who they are as people and less about the quantitative measurements of who they are. But when they were saying no about any particular student in particular, specifically, right, it was, again, behavior, right? So uh, this is to say that I think that there is a lot of emphasis and stress and anxiety on the, the quantitative parts of this process, the, the testing, the MCAT, step exam, you know, I understand from the perspective of being a dad and a, and, a, and a former teacher that, you know, assessment anxiety is very real and, and tends to be one of the things that is the most damaging to, to a person's self-confidence and to their ability to persevere. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a significant blow to one's self-esteem to not do well on an exam. It happens, but, but it is. So this is to say that if, if that is something that is inherently part of any candidate's consideration, that they really have to think about whether or not this is the right pathway for them because it's, I don't see it changing. I mean, I, there's lots of evidence out there to support that the new generation of students will be less amenable to testing as frequently as students are tested now, less amenable to wellness in, in the face of this anxiety, and less compelled to follow the structured guidelines of success towards assessment. They will find their own way. I mean, this is what we understand about young people. Crowdsourcing has become a very big part of establishing the dynamics of the new generation. You know, information has always been accessible to them. I mean, they grew up with cell phones. So the fact that answers are not known is especially challenging for them. Yeah, you can't just Google admissions answers all the time. (laughs) Right. But medicine is an inexact science. There isn't an answer for everything. It, 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 right. It encourages curiosity. It encourages investigation. And it may not be the kind of thing that comes easily. So we have to know that students are still structurally built that way, that they still have those things inherently as part of who they are to succeed in medicine because medicine will become more challenging because now patients are starting to think the same way. I know what's wrong with me. I can look at my tablet or look at my my cell phone or my smartphone and it's telling me what's wrong with me. I can Google, you know, WebMD, type in my symptoms. I know what's wrong with me. How come you can't just prescribe something for me, right? So we have to be able to get beyond what is factual knowledge that we think we have 
to answer every problem, but still have the capacity to be investigative and curious and solve the bigger problems that are coming down the road. Because now the things we don't know are the things that ultimately we need you all to help us figure out. So, you know, I think that that's one thing I would say is to, is to inspire that within each candidate, being curious, being able to, um, advocate for yourself, being able to find a way to bolster your own confidence in, in times of, of struggle and despair. I mean, we all know how challenging it is to, to sit and watch even the evening news now, but you have to be able to, to put that into context with your own considerations for, for life, for happiness, for security, for friendships, and, 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 and to be able to communicate with people who are not like you, who don't, who don't have the same perspective as you. Like those things you have to cultivate, you have to continue to understand that's part of life. You have to be able to have those parts of your life amenable to others. You have to be able to engage in discourse. You have to be able to listen. You have to be able to understand and empathize with others. This doesn't diminish your own perspective. It just increases your opportunity to be a compassionate and responsive uh, collaborator, whether that be with your colleagues or with your patients. So again, I would say those are the things that I would continue to try to help, you know, or advocate for. Those are all things that you don't have to have a great deal of, you know, coursework to do, or it's not going to encourage you to spend time behind, you know, uh, in the library to do. It's just, it's just about being, you know, a person, like we say, for others, that's amenable to understanding the different variables that exist in society, some of which are good, some of which are not so good. You're going to see all of those things in your scope and time as a professional practitioner of care. So best to kind of have that inventory of things to expect, best to put yourself into a position as a student to work with your colleagues, to work with your peers, to develop behaviors that will help you answer those questions moving down the road. Hopefully this will, this, you know, this will help those who have questions about the myths of admissions. I'm sure that there are a lot more uh, than we've covered, but I always uh, leave my door open to these, to the, the, the questions that are, that inspire great mystery and admissions and trying to make it transparent has been one of my goals for quite some time. So I appreciate this opportunity. Great. Yeah. I know it's November when we're recording this, so you're probably knee deep in applications and interviews right now. And we really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Not a problem. My pleasure. Thank you all for doing this. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I think our listeners will benefit greatly from the information and insights you shared. So thank you for being here. You're very welcome. 
As always, thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, no patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment.